0: Hello, and welcome to the Christ Church Cathedral podcast. This is the sermon from our past Sunday, recorded live from the cathedral. We hope these words will really speak to your heart and mind. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, when I was 25, I met the Queen. I was in, in England to study singing and just before I left home, I wrote to the Canadian High Consulate to apply to attend one of the Queen's garden parties, something any Canadian can do only once in their life. Weeks later, I received a heavy manila envelope with a beautiful engraved invitation to Her Majesty's garden party at Buckingham Palace. I still have it around someplace. So I dutifully went out and bought a hat and a smart dress and on the day I queued, you're always queuing in England, I queued with hundreds of other guests outside the gates of the palace until we were let in. To walk across the palace forecourt in through the doors that we see so often on television, up the plush red carpeted stairs and through to the back of the palace, to the gardens, was, as you can imagine, for this young woman from Stony Creek, Ontario, an incredible experience. But the really incredible experience was being in close proximity to the queen. That was incredible. She was a diminutive figure, not much more than five foot, physically speaking. But the space that she took up, psychically and physically, was huge. She was, as you can imagine, charming. She was smiling and engaged with a couple that was standing right in front of me. Um, who had been chosen to meet her properly while the rest of us looked on. But I will never forget the way she moved through the crowd. Very intent on making relationship with, with eye contact and with gestures, myself included. Sharing herself, taking up residence in our hearts and in our minds. So this has been a very sobering week. We were already, as a nation, heavy of heart because of the tragic deaths of those on the James Smith Reserve in Saskatchewan. And we pray for all our siblings who are affected and for their healing. And then came the news that our sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth, had died. Long live the King. These same really strange words, new words, words that we need to now get used to. Now, if you're feeling a little wobbly these days, it's not surprising. If you're feeling strangely emotional, and maybe a bit unsure, you're not alone. I feel it too. It's a peculiarity with the monarchic system that we celebrate a new sovereign at the very same time as we mourn the old. And this really makes real the words of the prayer book that in life, we are in the midst of death. At the very moment that we're experiencing the destabilizing effect of loss, we're also embracing the fresh feeling of almost like a safety net of a new dispensation. Perhaps some have been surprised at the public and personal grief of many as our culture integrates the news of the Queen's death and what that means. I've watched, as I'm sure all of you have, the strong reactions of people all over the world in the territories and the realms in where she was Queen and and all outside of that too, as people of all ages and places pour out their sorrow at her loss. Some have also understandably poured out their anger and their antipathy to the institution of monarchy as well as an arcane and somewhat creaky symbol of colonialism and a bygone era. Whatever the reaction, it seems that it's a rare person in these last days who has remained untouched by her death. Apparently, eight out of every nine people alive today have only known her as the Queen. She was woven into our culture as an icon. For those in the Commonwealth, she's greeted us every single day on our banknotes and coinage. And for Canadian Anglicans, we prayed for her as we will for King Charles, with regularity. She was an unusually important global symbol of constancy and devotion. And perhaps it's not all that surprising in the end. With the pandemic in recent years, we've lived with a great deal of uncertainty and we're still parsing its effects even as we live through it. And we've looked for and we've clung to signs of stability in our world. And I think Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's iconic status only grew in this time of need. She seemed to be a North Star, speaking words of comfort that evoked a wartime spirit of fortitude and resilience. And she inspired as only those who have lived through adversity and survived it could. And like all icons who are widely admired and who have great influence and significance, the Queen, our Queen, represented many things to many people. Much has and will be said about her faithfulness, about her dedication and selfless commitment to duty. All of that will be said in the coming days, and all of that is true, and and her iconic status is largely built on those things. But, But for Christians and for Anglicans, there is a deeper valency yet. Because for Her Majesty the Queen's dedication was not just a matter of character. But as she said often, it was built on the solid rock of the theology of sacred monarchy embodied in the vows of the English coronation service that she would say just 16 months after her accession, but towards which the trajectory of most of her life had been oriented. The Queen was asked in that service by the Archbishop of Canterbury Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? So you can see in this vow that we can hear that the monarch is, is understood to stand in that liminal place, joining the temporal with the spiritual. And you know, there are few places in our world where this is the case, and, and Her Majesty the Queen was a potent symbol of that dual role. In England, she was both the head of state and also the supreme governor of the Church of England. And as such, both estates were understood to be mingled there. Both estates, temporal and spiritual, take up residence in the person of the monarch. Because you see, at its best and its highest, which admittedly is a state rarely attained this side of glory, monarchy is meant to emulate the union between heaven and earth. In Jesus the Christ, which the Gospels are all about. God taking human form, coming among us to teach, to to convict, to, to love, and to finally redeem us, to bring us into closer relationship with God's self for our eternal benefit. And, you know, this understanding hasn't been lost. It's still the case. King Charles expressed an acknowledgement of this heavy responsibility in his first address to the Commonwealth. And of course, there's a whole history and tradition of sacred kingship in the Old Testament. Throughout the scriptures, from scarce mentions in the Pentateuch to the fuller descriptions of, of kingship and government in Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, it becomes clear that there are Well there are specific attributes that the monarch and the authorities, we hope and pray, possess. The king was a symbol of national unity, but monarchy itself came under the covenant. Israel's king was to be a covenantal king. He wasn't a free agent. He was always obligated to submit to the law of Israel's great king, the Lord. The monarch was supposed to watch over both the religious life and the conduct of the people to protect the worship of God in the land. In other words, to be the defender of the faith. The monarch was responsible for justice and mercy in the realm. Now if you're hearing the echo of the uh, English coronation service, this is really purposeful. They, uh, these vows are derived from the idea and the ideal of biblical kingship. There's even a provision for the failure of leadership because kings are, and queens are human like the rest of us. The greatest king of the Old Testament, David, teaches us that kings are not perfect, far from it. Twice David sinned egregiously, but more importantly, twice he sought God's forgiveness and was called a man after God's own heart because he kept returning to the Lord. So, there is, if you like, an agreement or a contract embodied in the person of the monarch of the covenant between the people and God that the monarchy is meant to be the mirror image of God's covenant with his chosen people, of Christ's covenant with humanity, one in which he promised himself in sacrifice. And love for us and a covenant after all is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and God's people it's always been so moving to hear over and again through the years our late Queens young 27 year old voice proclaimed that whether her life be long or short it will be dedicated to our service and it was just as important to hear our new King Charles III echo that sentiment yesterday You see, biblical promises, with their layers and layers of precedent and tradition, have obligations in them. Biblical promises are reciprocal and not one-sided, but always mutual with inbuilt accountability. And in turn, the covenant, or if you like, the contract between the monarch and people, is played out in other areas of leadership in our society, between the prime minister and his or her people between MPs and MPPs and their people. And on from there, too, in marriage, the covenanted relationship between two people is also meant to mirror that of God with his people and between a monarch and his. And importantly, the same ideas are also in play in our own relationships with each other, in friendship, in Christian community like this. And the keynote of all of these covenants is reciprocity. Even, or maybe especially, monarchs live according to this holy law. We have had a sovereign whose service has been embodied in this law. She was acutely aware of her own iconic status, heavy with the power of symbolism and expectation, and and particularly in her later years, she and those around her sought to use it to pursue the common good. For instance, as the Dean has mentioned, her concern for creation and and her vocal and and solid support for the work that the Duke of Edinburgh, King Charles and the Prince of Wales had undertaken and continue to undertake to raise awareness about the climate crisis and their work to address it. Her, Her words and her support were being felt more and more. This summer, this past summer at the Lambeth Conference, she wrote to all the bishops of the Communion about that. And she underlined both its importance and our obligation of faith to dedicate ourselves as a church to addressing it. This is really significant to remember right now as we find ourselves in the middle of the season of creation, praying for the strength and the will to do the same. And throughout this this time of official mourning, when so much will be said, so much about her life will be sifted and poured over as we sadly but gratefully retire this icon to blessed memory and begin to ascribe meaning to her successor. What we pray in the words of a beautiful funeral prayer in our prayer book is this, that nothing good in this woman's life will be lost but will be of benefit to the world. And that all that was important to her will be respected by those who follow. And that everything in which she was great will continue to mean much to us now that she is gone. We ask that she may go on living in our hearts and in our minds, in our courage, and in our conscience. So today, And over the next eight days, we are giving ourselves appropriate time to mourn her loss and to consider her significance, to now hold dear those things she had held for us in life. And as we do so, we give thanks for her steadfast Christian witness. And we pray in turn for our new king, that his faith and witness may also be strengthened by Almighty God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Christ Church Cathedral. Audio editing and original theme by Eduardo Farias. We hope you join us again soon. Have a blessed day.